Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now today's message. My goodness, do we have a text to tackle this morning. If you're a guest with us, my name is Joel and I'm one of the pastors here. Let me ask you to turn, if you have a copy of the New Testament, to Hebrews chapter 11. If you're unfamiliar with how scripture is arranged or maybe you didn't bring a Bible in, then no worries on that. You're going to see several of the passages on the screen. And if you'd like to leave with a Bible today, just find somebody with a lanyard and ask them for one. Uh, and that will be our gift to you. I do want to mention while you're turning and while we're kind of readying our hearts for what I think is probably going to be the most challenging message in this eight-week series, uh, that there's a special edition of the Covenant podcast coming very, very soon uh, around the subject of the end times, biblical prophecy. Uh, what's, what's happened in Israel over the last several weeks has prompted a lot of questions from many of you. Uh, and we do try as pastors to listen to those questions and try to address them. And we felt like the, the best way to do that would be in a special edition podcast. So if you don't already subscribe on Apple Music or Spotify or whether you, whatever your preferred platform is, we'd encourage you to go ahead and get subscribed to that. You can go to our Facebook page and find that. You can just search on whatever platform you use for the messages from Covenant. Maybe even put West Virginia in there. Uh, you'll know you're at the right one when you see our logo, uh, and that, that is coming soon. Now, we, we do that because, again, uh, the world's in a bit of a mess, as I think we all realize right now, and every time the world gets in this kind of shape, and every time it has happened over the last 2,000 years, Matthew 24, naturally and reasonably, comes to the minds of followers of Jesus. When you see this, when you see that, look up because your redemption draws near. And so we want to ask the question, what does that mean? We want to be honest about some of the disagreements, even with our own church body, about the significance that the nation of Israel plays in that. But ultimately, uh, we want to just share with you, what does this mean? What is the blessed hope? When we talk about the second coming of Jesus, which we all stand in unison and believe will happen how should we view some of these events and how should they relate to that? We'll be honest where there's disagreement. We'll be clear about where we're united together. Uh, and ultimately, uh, you'll be able to, to really rest in that blessed hope, to look forward as Jesus told us to look forward in Matthew 24, but also to kind of avoid some of the distractions of the so-called sort of cottage industries that pop up every time something like this happens around the world. And, and there are people who they, they want to sell books and they want you to download their stuff, and they want, and that, that's not necessarily wrong, but, but how, do you, how do you stay faithful to Jesus without getting distracted too much by trying to read too much into what may be going on here? And so uh, just look for that. I'm going to record it sometime this week. It'll drop very, very shortly after that. Now, some of you may wonder, well, there's some pretty significant stuff going on in the world. Why wouldn't you just interrupt your series and talk about this? And the answer is pretty simple. Because no matter what's happening in the world, and no matter whether you agree or disagree with me or each other about the significance or the meaning of that, the mandate for followers of Jesus does not change. And the mandate's what we've been talking about. So that's another exercise, and not getting distracted is to focus on, regardless of what time I'm living in, whether I'm living in Renaissance Europe or whether I'm living in America in 2023 or whatever may be happening in other parts of the world, I have a mandate. I have a, there's a particular kind of disciple that Jesus wants to produce in me. And those are the, really two questions that we've been asking. What kind of disciples do we want to make and what kind of church will that produce and what kind of difference will that church make? And that brings us to Hebrews chapter 11 this morning. I don't know about you, but there are days that just in my lived experience, it feels to me like it's getting harder to do this. Anybody with me? Like, it's just like, this is not like I, the, the Christianity that I have believed pretty much all my life and practiced and, and, and tried with various degrees of success and failure like most of you. Uh, it seems like, at least on the surface, it's getting harder to do. It even seems like in wider culture, maybe sometimes people get punished because of what they believe. And here's what we're going to learn from Hebrews 11. 
truthfully, it is no harder to be a Christian right now than it's ever been. And it's honestly, if we just back up, I mean, there's my lived experience and then there's the truth. And sometimes those two coincide and, and sometimes they don't. And if we back up from the trees a little bit, I think we'll discover it's really no harder to be a Christian right now than it was about 50 years ago. Now, be honest. How many of you, you find that hard to believe? Seems like it might have been easier 50 years ago. Well, it was easier to be a cultural Christian 50 years ago. But it is no harder now than it was a half century ago to be an actual follower of Jesus. And if we want to do this well, we, we have to learn to separate the two. All right? And so everything else we've been talking about the last three weeks, living a questionable life, living a hospitable life, living a Christ-centered life, it, it's not lost on me that that's not easy. I know it's not easy. The kinds of things that Jesus demands from you and demands from me require gospel-centeredness, the indwelling and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, all of those kinds of things, or it's simply never going to get done on the one hand, or on the other, we're going to switch to another gospel. I was visiting a, a church pastored by a good friend of mine out west several years back, and I, it, was, it was rather, it was larger than us. It was a couple thousand people, and so uh, I was walking through the foyer of that church. And those of you that are in, in maybe in marketing or communications, you, you'll understand this language even better than a, lot, than a lot of preachers. He had just hired a communications director to project the message of the church. Well, this guy didn't have a real church background, but he was very, very good at messaging, branding, those kinds of things. And I was walking with him through the foyer of this large church, and, and what I saw was amazing. Everything from the banners to the stations that were set up and everything, the way everything was focused, and I commended him on it. I said, I walked into this place knowing my brother in Christ, my fellow pastor, knowing his passion, knowing what he, what he feels like the Lord wants him to produce in this church environment, and, and what I'm seeing is exactly that. Like, I've been in this foyer 10 seconds, and if I didn't know who this church was, I'd already know who you are. Because it just screams, we are here to serve our neighbors and the world. We are here to be actual disciples of Jesus and, and to do these things well, to build servants to our neighbors and to the world. Now, here's the interesting thing. This gentleman was, had just left a much, much larger church of about 20,000 people that was led by a prosperity preacher. One of these guys that tells you that you come to Jesus to get rich and healthy and all these, everything, just come to Jesus and everything will be great. Cadillacs will fall from the sky, like, right, it's just going to be wonderful. Usually it involves a, you know, a nominal donation to them. And somehow or another, it, 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 it revolves around that $1,000 mark. I don't know that, the, I just don't know that that's the Holy Spirit, guys. I just don't. In fact, I'm quite certain it's not. If what comes out of somebody's mouth is heresy, it ain't inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so it was just this whole, you know, God wants you wealthy, God wants you healthy, God wants you... And, and, and when I commended him on his new assignment, I said, you have communicated the mission of this body incredibly well. This is what he said. Keep in mind, he's not a theologian, he's not a pastor, he's just a communications expert. He said, yeah, this one's a lot harder sell than the last one. Of course it is. Telling people they're always going to be happy? Telling people that the, the, the path of a, of a cross somehow is supposed to always lead to health, wealth, and prosperity? Of course this one's a lot harder to sell. And the kind of life that, that Scripture actually calls us to live is not easy. But, but here's the thing. For those of us living in 2023, this will be a little bit of a challenge, hopefully a little bit of an encouragement to you. It was at one point in time much, much harder than it is right now. It really was. I want you to imagine with me a time really not that long ago in Christian history when there was no such thing as 501c3 nonprofit status. No such thing as religious freedom, at least not in the modern concept of it that we have. No such thing as cultural favor or privileged status of any kind for those who called themselves followers of Jesus. There was a time when our ancestors, our faith ancestors, existed in an environment so incredibly hostile that it honestly makes what you and I call persecution just look embarrassing. And it's in that environment that those men and women thrived and the church grew and eventually a whole empire got conquered and the world changed for the glory of God. And, and 
Hebrews chapter 11 tells us how that happened. All right? It's not going to be easy, but it's, man, there's some promises here that if we'll latch on to them, we'll be powerful in your life and mine and the, in the life of our church. Now, making further complicating matters, we really have no idea who wrote this book. There's a traditional view that it was written by Paul. There's, there's scholarship out there that points to Luke. I happen to believe it was Apollos. There's some emerging scholarship that points to Priscilla, which would sort of explain why there's no name attached, because if a woman's the author in the first century, probably it's not going to be received very well. Um, so we, we could even be reading the, the, the only letter in the New Testament that was written by a woman. We really don't know. So whoever this author is, and to my sisters in Christ, it just indulge me as I use the masculine pronoun. I'm just going to make it easier on myself here. He, he or she is writing to a generation of Christians that had already paid dearly for their faith. And by this point, they're tempted towards spiritual lethargy and they're asking themselves two questions. Is it working? And is it worth it? And if you had gone through, if I had gone through all the things that we're going to read about that these people had gone through, I suspect we'd be asking the same two questions. We probably are asking those two questions regardless. Is it working and is it worth it? And here's what I want you to see. The people on whose shoulders we stand that are described here, man, they are tough as nails. They endured great persecution and tribulation. And they both preserved and passed down the faith that you and I hold today. Think about that for a minute. These people are the reason you're sitting there 2,000 years later. All right, I'm part Cherokee Indian, part Scottish, part British. Were it not for the men and women that we're about to read about, I would either be in an animistic Native American religion or I'd be worshiping Thor right now. I got a lot of things to thank these people for. And you do too. You do too. And here's the thing. It's not just one of the ways you can thank them is by emulating what they talk about here. All right, so here's, here's the thing I want to do over the next few moments that we have together. Two questions. What is a faith-filled life? What's that consist of? And then the second was, how do I live that life? Both of those questions get answered here. So let's take them in order, beginning with the one that comes first. What is a faith-filled life? We see three characteristics of a faith-filled life here. It has a singular passion. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now, faith is when you see that those three words really ought to get your attention because we're about to be told what faith is it is number one assurance and it is secondly a conviction so what's what's he talking about there assurance refers to substantive tangible things that are coming even things that have been promised to me that i don't yet possess but i continue to move forward because my faith is the ground of my hope and then my conviction is that i can't get it. I can't taste it, touch it, see it, hear it, feel it, but I know that exists and my focus, my lifelong focus is that thing. It's, so, so it's the conviction that something exists that God has promised me and the assurance that eventually it's going to come into my possession. And if any of you are employed or have ever been employed, you already possess a measure of this faith. Because think about how you were brought onto that staff or brought into that organization. Unless you're just part of the gig economy and you became a quote-unquote employee, you had to fill out an I-9 to demonstrate that you could legally work in this country. Then you had to fill out a W-4 so that the accounting department would know how much in taxes to deduct from you. And then you had to fill out all kinds of other forms. There was probably a handbook or an HR manual that you had to read, a, a salary and benefits package that was offered to you by the HR department. And then on your hire date, you reported for work. How many of you on your first day of work got, had been paid already? Yeah, unless you got an advance, probably not. You reported for work, having already done some work that you didn't get paid for. It takes hours to fill out all those forms, doesn't it? You ever notice how you don't get paid for that? Somebody ought to call the labor department, amen? Like, what is going on with this? Like, you haven't seen anything yet. And, and truthfully, all that paperwork means nothing if there's no money come payday. So when you went to work, you were exercising faith. That money ain't in the bank yet, but I'm working because I have a personal assurance that there's a payday coming. Now, here's the convicting part of that for me. When I think about that just as an example, an illustration, how many of us trust our employers more than we trust our Creator? 
when we're living this life, genuine biblical faith exists when you and I put our ultimate trust in a God who made promises to us. And that is, by the way, exactly what all these people who came before us did. Verse 2, for by it the people of old received their commendation. I wish we had time today. We don't. But I would encourage you on your own or with your families maybe to read this in great detail. There's just some powerful stories. We could go weeks and weeks and weeks just on Hebrews chapter 11. These amazing people, Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Jacob and Sarah and Moses and Rahab. Different backgrounds, different circumstances of life. Jews and Gentiles, they all held one thing in common. They lived their lives with a singular confidence in a promise. That's how you know whether or not you're living in faith. All right, It's not how much theology you know or how much Bible you have memorized or whether you think you may or may not hear from God. In the day-to-day, from how you get up to how you work to how you relate to other people to your disposition toward the problems and circumstances in your life, you've got to ask this question, whether it's the decisions I make, whatever it is, am I living as though I believe God can be trusted? I have to live that way if I'm going to live like these ancient people because that's what they did. Who do you really trust? Here's a good measuring stick question. What makes you anxious? I don't mean psychologically anxious. I get that there's a, there's a lot of anxiety in the world right now. It's, it's, it's kind of normal for people who have gone through the kinds of things we've been made to endure. I, I'm talking about the stuff prior to 2020 that made you anxious, Right? When you look at the stock market ticker in the morning and it's red instead of green, does that make you anxious? I just read an article in the Wall Street Journal three days ago that said all the conventional wisdom about investing, this much in stocks, this much in bonds, this much in treasuries, they're like, you know, and this is how that mix needs to be when you're in your 20s, and this is what it needs to look like when you're in your 30s and your 40s and your, and your 50s, that's me. And you're, you're like, you're in, you're in sight of that Medicare eligibility moment, and you, you need to make sure you've got a, enough of a nest egg. Conventional wisdom says, this is the package, this is what that looks like, and this article in the journal said, none of that's true anymore. We're like at a point... Some of you are in your 60s going, thanks a lot. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. Like, it's not that you can't still do things wisely. It's just that we used to just be able to do this stuff thoughtlessly, and, and everything's just kind of been reset, and there's just no way. So, so does that make you anxious? A political poll comes back, and your candidate is behind. News shows violence not just around the world or in a place like Israel, but in your neighborhood going up. And you, you allow those things to, to tempt you and distract you to the point of anxiety. And, and, and then here's what we're saying in that moment. We're living in a way that says, I, before I can get out of this, i got to see something. Faith is the assurance. It is the conviction of things I do not see. So seeing is believing. If that's my philosophy around the promises of God, and this is how I'm living, that, it's no wonder I'm living in fear. That's a first-class ticket to a life lived in fear. Faith is grounded in the character of a God who has made promises and has kept every single one of them. So a faith-filled life has a singular passion. Here's a second characteristic. It takes the long view. If you fast forward to verses 13 to 16, you start to see some things about these people all these died in faith having not having received the things promised all right here's a God who says I keep all of my promises but there are people even in this world who lived and died never really seeing or or sensing the fulfillment of those promises they live faith in in faith their entire lives and they never saw a payday how you do that here's the second thing about them they continued in the faith because they believed something far better waited for them in the next life. And we have this dualistic philosophy that is really less informed by God's word, more informed by Greek philosophy, that has kind of crept into the modern church that results in, in, a, in a couple of different outputs. And, and one is, if I don't see it, then it must be, I've got to see something in this world or it's not happening. And then the other one is, well, this world and, and the other world are so completely separate that I'm going to be, as they say, of, of, I'm, I'm going to be so heavenly minded that I'm no earthly good. 
All right? and, and the author of Hebrews throws all that into balance for us. This is how you live in this life. Well, the chief way you do that is you live primarily for the next life. Jesus would put it this way in Matthew 6. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where three thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where the thieves do not break and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Okay? Now, is there any sin in having money? No. There were very, very wealthy and very, very righteous people in the Scriptures. So prosperity gospel is heresy, but poverty gospel is its ugly cousin. All right? It comes from the same root, judging the spiritual value of something by how thick the wallet is. And Jesus is calling that out and out, where your treasure is. This is not a question of what you possess, but it is a question of what possesses you. What am I living for exactly, right? You can be wealthy. It's not about having wealth. It's not about having truckloads of wealth. It's about what do I do with my wealth, and your immediate answer is like the guy in Luke chapter 16. i got to build bigger barns. I got, it's, my life is all about me. Right? It's a question of your heart that asks, what do you really treasure more than anything else? And, and the reason I think so many of us are anxious, fearful, especially in the times in which we live, is that there are things that we are so afraid of losing that they distract us. Let me, let me encourage you, or maybe even discourage you, by reminding you that even before we saw the world in this kind of mess, eventually one of three things is going to happen to everything you own. All right. You're either going to lose it while you're still alive, it's going to be passed down to the next generation, sold at a yard sale maybe, or it's going to be destroyed by the elements. Every single thing that you own. You say, well, at least I've got my relationships. Yeah, maybe. Every single relationship you have will one day end. It will. People ask Amy and I sometimes, like, how, how do y'all put each other on airplanes and go? Like, she's in the team, they're in a relatively safe place right now. I'm supposed to be in the Middle East in a few weeks. Maybe not so safe. But, but even where the team is right now, like, we don't do this without counting the cost, about being aware of things that are happening on the globe. I mean, nothing has to happen in, in Vietnam for our team to be put at risk. It could happen at a connecting airport. It could happen to I me. Mean, world's in a mess right now, right? And so, so people, you're just looking honestly at that, and people go, well, how do you do that? How do you do it? Because I do, man. I love that woman more than any other human being on this planet. How do I do that? Well, I have to realize, first of all, that as much as I love her, Jesus loves her more. There's no way I, am, I can even begin to be capable of loving her the way he does. All right? And the other thing I need to remember is that both of us have that larger connection to Jesus, and that's the primary relationship, which is why the, the relationship we have merely points to that eternal relationship. But it is not itself an eternal relationship. If we're both faithful to Jesus and to each other, our marriage will not terminate until one of us dies, but our marriage will terminate one day. One of us is going to bury the other. So I, put, I can put her on a plane, not because I'm not concerned, not because I don't wonder, not, not because of any of those things, not because I'm naive and unrealistic about some of the dangers in the world out there, but because I know he loves her more than I do, and I know eventually our marriage will terminate, and if it's going to terminate... On this side of it, we need to do some stuff for Jesus, and we can't do that if we're always reacting out of fear. Followers of Jesus run toward danger, toward need, not away from it. It's one of the things that we're going to see here in just a few moments with, with the, the saints in Hebrews chapter 11. Do I value this more than anything else? When you cling to anything in this realm as your ultimate treasure, fear and angst will always be at the end of that road. Every single time. That's why the prosperity gospel is heresy. 
because it's come to Jesus to get this or get that and have all these possessions. Well, you're going to lose them one day. Then what happens to your faith? And we're exporting this nonsense. You go to sub-Saharan Africa and people have been told by some white guy in a suit with bad hair, believe this message and your pigs will stop dying and your wife won't have miscarriages anymore. What a damnable, damnable message. The saints that we see in Hebrews 11 had no such promise. They did not count on that promise. They had a greater promise. It's not this world. It's the next one. It's the next one. All right? If you want to lead a different kind of life, you have to treasure something greater than anything God could give you even in this world. They took the long view. If you don't believe that, just think about Abraham. The promise to Abraham as followers of Jesus, we believe that was completely fulfilled in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Abraham died thousands of years before that promise actually occurred and was fulfilled in human history. So you've got you've to take the long view. That's tough. I mean, we live in a world, forget about the prosperity of God, but we live in a world where even in sort of mainstream evangelicalism, I pray for something on Monday, and if by Thursday morning it hasn't been answered in exactly the way that I want it answered, I start deconstructing. I become an atheist. My goodness, like, where's, where's our patience? Where, can you imagine what these people of old would think? If they could, you know what, forget about these people of old. What about our brothers and sisters in Palestine right now? You know, there's evangelical Christians. There are churches in the Gaza Strip right now, faithful followers of Jesus, caught in the middle of the most god-awful mess that most of us, unless you've been special ops in the military, you haven't even come close to experiencing anything like that. And they're being faithful. What would they think about this pastor? about the stuff that spins me up, the stuff that sometimes gets me upset. I, and these are the things, again, it's not, a, it's not a guilt trip. It's not trying to put shame on you or even me. But I just wonder when I think about those suffering saints in those other parts of the world, if they were to come over here and have a visit with me for a couple of days, would they look at me and go, Did you, have you forgotten who you follow? You're a pastor? I wonder sometimes, and I think it's these challenges, it's these people who help us. We'll get more to, to seeing that more clearly when we get to chapter 12. But it's funny, you, you're losing sleep over what? Price of fuel? Not stabilized market? Some election goes the wrong way? And you think, oh my gosh, we're done for. By the way, Anybody in my line of work who keeps repeating this godforsaken lie that this is the most important election, turn that crap off. They do that every four years just to juice you up and get you to send them money. All right? And I'm the guy, maybe, I don't know, you, you just, well, I, well, I kind of like what they say. Yeah, well, there, there's a verse about looking for teachers and your ears are itching and you want somebody to scratch them. Most important election. Number one, they're all important. Civilization is important. Number two, when you build all that up like that, what are you doing? That's fear. That's angst. That's the very opposite of what the gospel is to provide you and me. We rest in a resurrected Lord. We rest in that. And we do that. We have this singular passion, this, this long view because we see in Hebrews 11 that that's what produces spiritual heroes. That's what gives us heroes. I can't go all into verses 32 to 37, but just all of the, here's what I want you to see though in those verses. What more shall I say? Time would fail me to tell. And he starts talking about, he gives us a few other names. And then I, I want you to notice these are things they did. They quenched the power of fire. They escaped the edge of the sword. They, made, they were made strong out of weakness. They became mighty in war. They put armies in flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. And then like right in the middle of the verse, I mean, that sounds stout, doesn't it? These are all the miraculous things. These are the wonderful, mind-blowing things that God did through his people. And this author, whoever he or she is, doesn't even use a comma between receiving back your dead by resurrection, and oh yeah, and some were tortured. 
refusing to accept release, they mocking, flogging, chains, imprisonment, stones, sawn in two, killed with the sword, went about destitute, living by faith? Yeah, some of these lives, I think it's, it's an understatement. Some of these lives were better than others, right? But regardless of their situation, they continued to live by faith, and they lived for something beyond themselves. And again, 2,000 years later, on the other side of the only world they knew, you and I live and exist and believe because of them. Which is why I think this is probably one of the more emotional parts of, of the New Testament. Because as the writer recalls these stories, it's almost like there's a flood of emotion now. I'm trying to imagine myself in that room with that original writer putting pen to parchment, writing all these passages and all these words that Pastor Nelson read for us at the outset of our time together. And it's like I can imagine a, a flood of emotion overcomes that, that author to the point that they lift the pen from the parchment. They sit back in their seat and they take stock of what they've just written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and the weight. And I can, I can just imagine it musing for a bit on the unbelievable nature of what he's just described, these historical events and, and people, and finally putting the pen back to parchment. And this is, this is his or her conclusion in verse 38, of whom the world was not worthy. And you and I can add to that list, can't we? Right. Stephen, Paul, James, Thomas, beyond our own day, Bonhoeffer, who we just talked about last Sunday night together, a black preacher named Martin Luther King who stood in the face of a hostile Jim Crow culture describing a dream that nobody in that point in my native South thought was possible. The world is not worthy of them. Here's the promise of the author of Hebrews. If you want to live a life like that, you can, but it's going to cost you. So that brings us to the second question. How do I live this kind of life? Four challenges. Number one, get rid of what holds you back. Chapter 12, verse 1, therefore, all right, in light of what we've read, what should we do? Now, in an organization, you have a preferred response and an actual response. So we go, okay, therefore, what should be on the other side of that? Well, what we're about to get is a preferred response, but it, it probably wouldn't hurt to push the pause button and say, what if this were an actual response? What if the author of Hebrews, rather than saying what he said, just simply described the way you and I sometimes react to certain things? I had a pastor friend of mine come up with this one that I'm, I'm, I'm about to show you, and I just thought it was a, it was a great example. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, now they're going to move to the next, um, the next slide here in just a moment, that's preferred. Actual's coming. Let us gripe and complain on social media. Live in fear. Stock up on canned goods and ammo. Lash out at those different from us. Demand our rights. Find somebody to sue. Blame the police. Blame the school system. Blame immigrants. Blame Bush. Blame Obama. Blame Trump. Blame our mamas. Tax the rich. Build a wall. Join the culture of outrage, obsess over prophecy charts, and pray that Jesus comes back real soon so that I don't have to suffer. I know that's not easy to hear, is it? It's hard to deny, though, that this reflects the way way too many people are actually living. We have a better way handed down to us, and it is surrounded, he says, by a great cloud of witnesses now often the way we've interpreted that is they're watching us I, i've been i've had the privilege of standing in the chapel at bees and divinity school in birmingham alabama and right above the pulpit there's this rotunda and around that rotunda you see paul you see ancient figures from church history john chrysostom justin martyr augustine then you see calvin and luther and they're all peering over right and, and, and it's this verse, Hebrews 12, 1. Well, all due respect to the architect and the people that designed that, that's not really what the author of Hebrews had in mind when he says, we are surrounded by witnesses. The encouragement is not to consider that they're looking at us, but that we're called to look at them. These are people who witness. It's the word for martyr with their very lives. They have witnessed this. And, and he says, Here's what you do. Lay aside every weight, every sin. 
Sin's the obvious part for those of us who are evangelical. Unrepentant sin in your life means you are treasuring rebellion against God more than you treasure being a part of his mission. Weight is a little more of a nonspecific word that just refers to anything that exerts control or restraint over you. What's holding you back? What causes you to live in fear? Throw it off. And, number two, never give up. Never give up. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Runners love this analogy, and this includes my wife. In fact, she tells me she's run half marathons before. That's 13.1 miles. I don't know why any sane person would do that if there was nobody chasing them, but my wife likes doing that, and I wait on her at the finish line with macarons holding her backpack. That's my duty on race day. And, and she has told me before that in a half marathon, those of you that actually run the full, it's probably a different mile marker for you. But at the half marathon, she said the greatest point of temptation is mile 10. Now think about that for a minute. You're three quarters of the way through that puppy. But you get to mile 10 and you start thinking to yourself, I don't think I can finish. You're exhausted Maybe you got stitches. Maybe there's, there's something going on. Your legs feel like they're just jello and they're about to give out. And, and this is like, I just don't, I don't have the energy to keep going. And I said, well, then what do you do? She says, you just keep putting one foot in front of the other until you cross the finish line. That's all you can do. I mean, you're already 10 miles invested into this. What are you going to do? Stop? That's what the author of Hebrews is talking about. Run with endurance. Endurance assumes there's going to come a time when you're going to want to quit. Right? And people feel guilty about that. Like, we're always supposed to live in victory. Listen, if you've never wanted to quit, you're probably not living the Christian life described here. Should I just, should I just throw in the towel? Is it working? Is it worth it? Those are the two questions that get asked. When you get to this moment, can I have it to do with a race? I talk to a lot of young parents that have come into our church, so thankful to have them, but they all kind of have the, the same profile. So if this is you and you feel like I'm singling you out, I'm not. You are not alone in this room or in the next one at 11 o'clock. Like they, they, they're all, they've all been married somewhere between about 12 and, and 16 years, and so that second sort of seven-year itch. And I'm not just talking about adultery. I'm talking about like, oh, my gosh, is this really worth it? And, and they're in the marriage relationship. And, and then they got these, these little ones running around the house that weren't there a few years before. And some of them are still in diapers, and you got to clean up after them. And one of my greatest privileges over about the last year is encouraging them. We're, we're actually going to, when Amy gets back, we're going to go sit with one of these small groups. It's just full of these young families. And, and my wife said, what do they want us to talk about? And I said, well, I think my best guess from the leader of that small group is, is I think the guys want to hear from me that eventually these years are going to unwind. And if you'll just keep getting up and going to work and getting up and taking your family to church and getting up and being faithful and doing what's necessary, eventually you're going to look back and you're going to see the reward of that. And you and your wife together are going it's, to, it's just going to be awesome. So this, this season you're in, number one, enjoy it because believe it or not, you will miss it when it's gone and it won't come back. And number two, after it's gone, it is going to end. Like you're, you're not going to change diapers forever. Grandparents, can I get an amen? Oh, this one smells. Here you go, son. All right? Like, that, that's, that's what's coming. And I said, I think what the ladies would probably like to hear from you is that there's a, there really is a way to stay married to the same man for almost 30 years and not murder him in his sleep. All right? What is, what's the re, how, you, how are you faith? Endurance. Endurance. It's not supposed to be easy, guys endurance run with endurance how do i don't tap out you get up and you feel like giving up you keep doing the right thing until the sky falls but there's only one way you can do that and you find that answer in verse two looking to jesus the founder and perfecter of our like how do i get through all of this well we're about to see the most glorious part of this conclusion who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So yeah, how, do I, how do I as a fallen man live this? By looking at the only perfect man that ever lived and following him. 
and doing to the best of my knowledge and ability whatever he would do. Look at the life of Jesus, but also look, look at the death of Jesus. For the joy that was set before him, because he knew and lived and died for something better than the life that he entered into when he incarnated himself in human flesh. He endured the cross. Well, that much we know. we got four gigantic ones here in this room. The cross for thousands of years now has been the symbol of Christian faith. But it's this next one that kind of throws us a little bit, despising the shame. And, and sometimes we miss what's meant by that because in the Middle Eastern culture for thousands of years has been, continues to be an honor-shame culture, which means shame is to be avoided at all costs. Avoided. And that was the primary issue with crucifixion. It wasn't the agony, as horrible as that physical agony was. It was the shame. And we forget sometimes Jesus grew up in a part of occupied Nazareth by Rome where he saw this all the time. He would have been very familiar with not just the agony but the shame of crucifixion. He had no doubt grown up hearing the moans and the cries of, of agony from those crosses. He would smell the blood. He would swipe the flies away as he walked past. He would, he would see the decaying flesh. He was very familiar with what this did to the human body. He would watch them decay as the soldiers just left them up there hanging. He, just like everybody, knew the shame, knew the horror, and he willingly walked right into it. That is the measure of his love for you and for me. And that is the measure of the kind of strength and endurance that he imparts to you and imparts to me. He does this. Now he looks back at us and says, so what are you afraid of exactly? I'm alive. Have you noticed the tomb is empty? Have you noticed the evidence that it was not a stolen body because a bunch of rednecks in Israel, you, start, you, you put them under interrogation and start making them squeal. If they've hidden the body, they're going to tell you where it's at. I'm alive. Whatever you're going through, whatever you're about to go through, whatever you're afraid of, whatever has paralyzed you with fear, I'm more powerful than that. Fix your eyes on me. Follow me. Don't look at where I was. Look at where I am. Look at where I am, seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's your destiny and mine, seated around that throne if you will follow me. And so the final consideration is this, don't grow weary. Verse 3, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Do this so that you won't lose heart. Lay aside everything that holds you back, including the sin, which sin always holds you back. Don't ever give up. And you stay faithful by fixing your eyes on Jesus because if you don't, you're going to come to the conclusion it's not working and it's not worth it. Even though every witness in the history of the church has been, you know, as has been demonstrated here, including our Lord himself, with their lives have proved otherwise. Way too many followers of Jesus today are growing weary and losing heart. You see major shifts going on in our culture, which, by the way, is just history 101. Read The Fourth Turning by a Yale historian named Neil Howe, and you will discover the whole world has been here before. You will discover that Solomon was right in Ecclesiastes. There really is nothing new under the sun. We're not facing anything unprecedented. Maybe in our lifetimes it is. But the world spins in cyclical, sinful cycles. And every time we go around that cul-de-sac, we get some things fixed by breaking other stuff. And it's the nature of a broken, fallen world until Jesus returns. But this is what we've got to do. You see that shift, it scares you. So you, you look at social media or turn on the news, which is always a great stress reliever. And, and, it, just, and, it, and, and it gets worse because we don't have news anymore. We have boutique news. Right? On the right and the left. It, it, you, you're tuned to a station that just you know, empowers and emboldens everything you believe and affirms that and then makes you either afraid or angry of the other side. You want to know why Congress is acting like a bunch of eight-year-olds right now? That's why. Because that's the culture that we're living in. And anything where you're focused on that kind of stuff, 
you fix your eyes on anything other than Jesus, you are going to grow weary and you are going to lose heart. And I'm going to say something here that's going to sound very, very cruel, and I don't mean it that way because I love you. But if that's the stuff you're putting your faith in, I hope you lose heart before you die. I want you to grow weary. I want you to get tired. I want our culture to get tired of this nonsense and return to its senses and come back to Jesus. And I'm talking about the part of that culture that actually is influenced by Christianity, supposedly, but has lost its ever-loving mind. Don't grow weary. Don't lose heart. How you do that? By remembering that there was a small band of people who would not have recognized the world with the level of cultural favor and privilege that you and I still enjoy who changed the course of history because they did not grow weary. Will you live this life for better or for worse? What if it gets worse? Because it might. We don't know. I mean, it's, I mean, the world is, I mean, world history is like a football. It takes funny bounces. Anybody watch a fumble on the field yesterday? You just, like, when that, when that ball co gets coughed up, like, you, it's, that's the most organized chaos you've ever seen in your life. That's global history. We don't know. This all might be buttoned up. We might all be back at peace in about three weeks, or we might be in World War III in three months. None of us knows. And by the way, those prophecy hacks that tell you they do know, turn them off. They're trying to get in your wallet. They're trying to get in your head. They're trying to capitalize on your fear. I'm, I'm saying this as a pastor, to turn that nonsense off. We don't know, but we don't have to know. We've got Jesus, and he's risen from the dead, right? And so if, you, if, you're, if you, well, you're throwing the towel and say it's not worth it, it's not working, you know, one of the more haunting passages in the scriptures in Revelation 6, the, there's seven seals opened, and, and, and on the fifth one, there are martyrs, people who've been killed for believing in Jesus. And they ask this question, they're underneath the altar, and they say, how long, O oh Lord, how long, before justice finally comes on our behalf, before the world is set right? And I, I read these words in Revelation 6. He speaks peace to them, and he says, rest until the full number of your brothers die who have been appointed for martyrdom. I was written 2,000 years ago. There is a definite number of people who will, according to this prophecy, give their lives in order to fulfill the mission of God. I might be looking at some of them. Some of them, years from now, you may discover that this morning you dropped them off back there because they're three, four, five years old right now. It might be your kids. When we talk about the mission of God, when we talk about engaging the world, when we talk about loving the world Jesus died to save, that is the measure of devotion that Jesus demands from you and from me. And that really makes this question have skin on it, doesn't it? Is it worth it? You and I have a long line of saints from both testaments described for us here in Hebrews 11 who over the past 2,000 years are screaming back at us, yes, it's worth it. So I want you to imagine that with me. An emerging generation of Christians. And by the way, if it's, if it's going to happen in my lifetime, it's going to happen with Gen Z. It will. Our kids and our teens. I'm watching it right now. Ellen and Chris see it more than me because they're, they're into it. Man, there is something God is doing, and it's not just a covenant. There is something God is doing with this generation of kids. And I, I don't know how all that's going to work out. I'm not as smart as some of them who've lived maybe half as long as I have. But I want you to imagine that generation of whom it will be said when we are dead and gone and when they are dead and gone. The world was not worthy of them. And that's our question. Are, are we living lives where that will eventually be said about us? That's the kind of life that will draw your neighbors closer to Jesus, and that's the kind of life that will draw you closer to Jesus than you have ever been before. There is a better life. It 
costs dearly, but it is worth it, and Jesus calls you to it today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these words that are at one at the same time frightening and inspiring. Lord, give us the assurance of what we hope for, the conviction of things we do not see as we fix our eyes on you. And Lord, I pray that out of this message and out of this time of worship that, that, that we would see arise men and women of God of whom it will be said the world was not worthy of them, who will not flinch in their love of neighbor, in their service to the world, in the way that they wrap their arms around the world with the arms of Jesus himself while speaking those words of Jesus, repent and believe the gospel. And so, Lord, we pray for each and every person here, that you would fill them, that, that they would not leave this building afraid, but filled with the very hope that is provided here. And we know it, it, only two kinds of people could actually believe a message like this, people that are crazy and need to be committed and people that are filled with the Holy Spirit. And so, Father, we just we ask your Spirit to come and to do what this human voice could never accomplish, and that is to fill people with courage and hope and the promise of everything that we've read. And I ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already receive from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.